Matthew chapter 12 is where I would invite you to look in your Bibles and um, to follow along in this series that is about answering accusations. Um, I think it's an important topic these days. The accusations are going to keep flying. They flew at Jesus, Jesus, the perfect man that ever walked this earth, fully God, took on humanity, full humanity. He's as smart as any man ever was on this earth. He was probably as strong as any man has ever been because his body was not touched with sin. His mind was completely sharp and clear, unaffected by the noetic effects of sin. The mind was completely sinless. It's incredible to think of this model and this example for us. Jesus, in full humanity, yielded perfectly to the power of the Holy Spirit to show us exactly what it looks like to live as Christians in this life. So we need to follow him and do what he did. And in particular, we're looking at accusations. These are accusations that came to Jesus and and flew at him, and they will come at us. And we need to respond as he did. First, Jesus was called an insubordinate, someone who was a nonconformist, who would not um, go with the flow of the Pharisaical interpretation of the law. The Pharisees saw Jesus out in the fields with his disciples. They start eating on the Sabbath day in the field and uh, eating the wheat that's there. And that was an accusation indirectly at Christ because he's saying, what are you letting your disciples do? You just let them openly rebel against the law? You're a nonconformist. And then Jesus goes into the synagogue and he's there probably teaching. He's, he's uh, worshiping on the Sabbath and, and there's a man who's brought to him with a withered hand. And so Jesus is set up again by the Pharisees where the Pharisees are saying, well, is it right to do good on the Sabbath and heal? Is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus heals this man because doing good is lawful on the Sabbath and Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. We've unpacked that in terms of the meaning of rest and resting in the Lord. And we rest in God as our creator and as our savior. And that's part of what we're doing even on a Lord's Day, a Resurrection Sunday. We we sit here and we say, Lord, we rest in you. You're the gentle and lowly shepherd that sees us through. Jesus is answering accusations by defending truth, defending who he is. And now Jesus comes into a third accusation. This time he's going to be called a rebel, a rebel. This is answering accusations and he is the one who is, or actually he he's this time is called a pagan. Let me correct that. First, he's a nonconformist. Secondly, he's an open um, rebel. And then thirdly, in verses 15 um, through 21, Jesus is um, called a pagan. You say, where do I get that? Well, this is an indirect accusation. All of the paragraphs of chapter 12 are around direct accusations and indirect or implied accusations. For Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to cross the Rubicon. He's going to break the mold because he's a Jew and he's on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, ministering to the people who are there, fellow Jews. But Jesus is directed by his father to go into 
out into the world and to reach people. And by him associating with the nations, he is going to be labeled a pagan, a pagan. This is what we all are called when we cross lines and meet with people who do not fit the general pattern of religion. Jesus is moving out from the religious atmosphere, the religious scrutiny, the religious power control that the, that the Pharisees were putting on people. And he's going out into the, the, the populace uh, that is called paganism. You know, there is a, a real path for a Jew towards separation. When you're born into um, Jewish culture, as you're born in, as, as an Israelite, you're someone who is circumcised. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Jesus knew that, that that ethnic circumcision, that ethnic cleansing was really a symbol of something deeper. It's a symbol of being circumcised in the heart. You're set apart from sin, from this world, and you're set apart unto the family of God. That's what circumcision represented. Secondly, we've learned that Sabbath separation was the sign under Moses' law that was holding the Sabbath day as separate in your work and economy. Now, why are these two witnesses, why are these two symbols such an important witness to the Israelite? Well, first of all, you are separated as an Israelite from paganism. And that separation is saying, I am ethnically pure. As an Old Testament Israelite, I'm ethnically pure from paganism, from worldliness. But as an Israelite who is separated in that way, you're also separated in Sabbatarian law where you're saying, my work ethic is unto the Lord and I'm setting apart this day of rest to worship God in separation. What is the motive behind separation? Well, number one, it's holiness unto the Lord. You're separating yourself from sin. And number two, it is to be a witness to the world. We separate... If you were in the Old Testament economy, you would separate for those reasons. And as a New Testament believer, it's the same thing. When you're separated and you become a member of the family of God, separated from the world, called out from the world, guess what? You are separated from sin. You are under the blood of Christ. God changes your heart and you are separated from this world. This world is not your home. You love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Less of the flesh, less of the eyes, boastful pride of life. You are separating yourself from that. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart. But you are not only separated from the world to avoid sin. You are also separated from the world so that you can witness to it and win it to the, to the next world. You're separated from the world and you are separated unto the world as a witness. That's what Jesus was doing. That, just to go back to the Old Testament again, that was the mission of Israel. Israel was the chosen nation, the beloved of God, to be a holy people, cleansed from paganism so that they could be a lighthouse to the nations. In the same way, Jesus is demonstrating here that he was separated from the world, separated in that way so that he could become a witness to the world. It's an amazing thing. It almost seems like a contradiction, but it is totally true that true holiness in your life will not isolate you from the world. Listen, true holiness under the Lord will send your heart up in worship and it will send your heart out into the world. You will witness to the world because you'll be distinct. You'll be different. 
My oldest daughter is, uh, makes me jealous because she's working a secular job and she's working a security job at, uh, at a college in New Mexico. And as a security officer, she's breaking up you know, parties and doing some different things. But what she's known for on the job is that she doesn't swear. We were talking about this a couple week, weeks ago. She just doesn't swear. She, I don't know that she's making a conscious decision not to use profanity, but everybody in the world usually is using profanity as bridge words, and they just say things, and they're just talking. It's like a, it's an extra language, and it's a language that is foul and, and uh, unbecoming of a Christian. And uh, my daughter doesn't swear, and so people know that. And I remember when I worked secular jobs, people would know that about me, and they would, you know, they would say, oh, so- sorry, I said that, or whatever. So how are you a witness for Christ? Well, oftentimes, it's just by showing up to work. It's just by being a Christian, by what you say, about what you love, about what you care about, and what you don't say. Or in our modern media technology, what you write or what you don't write. How do you witness? You show up. God has separated you from the world, and he separated you unto the world as a witness for the Lord. Richard Niebuhr wrote a book on this in 1951 called Christ and Culture, and there were five categories of Christ and culture. It's what our radio broadcast, our sermon broadcast is called Christ and Culture. Um, it was the 50s. He was, a, he was a theologian from that time period, an ethicist, and he basically said there's, for category one, there's opposition to culture. You're Christ against culture. Uh, uh, Category two, agreement between Christ and culture. So you're kind of putting it together. Category three, a combination that incorporates both views and you're Christ above culture. Or category four, a synthetic type where Christ is the fulfillment of the ongoing tension of Christ and culture paradox. It's a paradox. We can't figure it out. And then number five, and this is the most popular one even today, a conversionist converter of culture. Christ, the transformer of culture. This is the save the city theology. We need to love our city and save it and transform it and reform it. It's a little bit like the make America great again uh, mindset, but put through a religious lens. We're trying to reform things to the way it used to be. Well, guess what? That's a sad goal for the Christian believer because we're, we're here in this world, and this is not a Bible verse, but we're in the world, but we're not of the world, right? We, we, we come to church because it's an embassy of another homeland, right? We're going to heaven, and we love heaven, and the church is defined as heaven on earth, you know, listening to songs or singing worship songs or talking in Christian conversations, caring about each other. All of that is a foretaste of heaven. We're not meant to change the world here in, in, in kind of a reconstructionist theology. We're not trying to create Christian governments and Christian centers. Um, we're, we're looking at scripture in realism here. In 2 Peter 3, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works, and all that will be exposed. Guess what? It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. I love creation. I love my family. I love campfires at night. I'm going to enjoy my Alaska summer, Lord willing. But we live in a fallen world, and there's always something you're worried about that's either happened to you, might happen to you, or will happen to you. And it's sin to worry, but it's because we're in a cursed world. It's sinful. People will do you wrong. And if you're mad at those things and you're reacting to that instead of living 
as a Christian who is passing through this world to win other people to heaven, if that's not your modus operandi of life, you're going to be a discouraged Christian. Because we live in view of judgment that's coming, and we live in view of the grace that we've been given, so we are not under that judgment. You know, this, is, this world has been compared to a ship that's got a hole in it, and it's going down. It is getting worse and worse, but the gospel shines brighter and brighter, and we want to win people to the next world. That's why we come to church. We come to church to refuel in the mission, to remember heaven together. I mean, all the doctrine of why we do what we do is heaven's doctrine. Think about it. We're hearing from God, the voice of God and the word of God. That's from heaven. The doctrine of God that tells us how to be saved. We're saved to go to heaven. Why do we evangelize? Why are we left on earth when we become a Christian so we can win people to Jesus? Why do we worship the Lord? Because we're connecting upwards towards heaven. Everything is heavenward in our mindsets when we are encouraged Christians, when we understand our purpose here. This world is not our home. We look for the millennial kingdom. We look for the new heavens and the new earth. This was Jesus' mindset. This is, this is why we come together. Because we're winning people to another world. Jesus is stepping away out of the comfort zone of religion. And remember, he's been on a mission in um, around the Sea of Galilee with his 12 hand-picked apostles. And he was ministering to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew chapter 10, verse 6. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now in chapter 12, he's turning his attention to the Gentiles, the ethnon, the ethnicity is, is where we get the word for Gentile. It's the same word in the original language, ethnon. And, and it means the nations. And for Jesus to step out into this zone would get him cast and labeled as a pagan. If you go outside of um, organized religion, organized Jewish religion, and you step out there, it's one thing for you to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath who's one of our own. But if you step out there, we're going to label you a pagan. You're a renegade. You were an insubordinate, a nonconformist, a rebel, an open rebel on the Sabbath. Now you're a pagan. That's the third accusation. Verses 15 through 21. Let me just read our text for us. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Where we see things beginning in verse 15 Jesus is going to operate in three movements. First of all, he withdraws. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. What is he aware of? Well, he's aware of what is just spoken of in verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees saw Jesus do good on the Sabbath, fulfill the law as the Lord of the Sabbath, and they said, we got to kill him for that. What's amazing to me is they saw him heal the man and they still were hard-hearted towards Jesus. 
They were still doubting the irrefutable Christ. Irrefutable. He's Jesus. He's the Messiah. And we're saying we need to kill him because he is threatening our power. He's threatening our control. He's threatening our ability to put people in a box and, and leave them there under, under the shackles of our control and religion. That's what they wanted. They lusted for the greed of power and, and Jesus was breaking that. Now, Jesus withdraws. You might say, well, why doesn't he just stay and fight? Well, um, somehow he knew they were planning his death. He's omniscient, so maybe he just knew that. But he also, maybe he was tipped off. Maybe somebody told him that these were consulting and conspiring to kill him. Uh, Don't think of Pharisees as misguided professors, by the way. They were bloodthirsty murderers. They were out to kill and premeditated kill Jesus, premeditated murder. And sometime, sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. The path of least resistance is the right path. Jesus is taking that path right now. He's not cowardly. He knows he's going to die on the cross. It's just not his time to die yet. He's synchronized with the Lord's will. He knows the cross is coming. John 7, 8 was a window into this where he said, I'm not going up to the feast. That was the Feast of Tabernacles for my time has not yet fully come. Matthew 26, though, later when Jesus was taken by the guards at the, hour, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, the hour is at hand. So Jesus is synchronized according to the Father's will. And the next step for what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to go out of the synagogue and go out into the nations and go out into the Gentile um, community around Galilee and preach the gospel and heal everybody and win the nations to Jesus. That's what he's called to do. You say, how did he know to do that? He's just doing the next thing. I'm telling you, this is how the Christian life is lived. Have the next conversation. Meet the next person. Get out of your comfort zone a little bit more and be the Lord to people. To live as Christ. To die as gain. To just give the truth. That's what it is. That's what he was doing. And he was was breaking the mold. It wasn't just that he was reaching Gentiles around Galilee. He's reaching Gentiles as a precedent for what we're all supposed to do. He's our example. He's the model. And he's doing this thing. He's living to play another down and going through this providential shift that God has set the stage for. He's quelling a revolutionary movement. He's just operating by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the first thing he did is withdraw. Second thing he did is healed. He healed people. And many followed him and he healed them all. He was no respecter of persons. He left no one in sadness. Healing wasn't his main mission. Healing was always to set the stage for this is what heaven's like. But the significance of Jesus healing them all is he didn't just heal the Jews. He didn't just come to the people that would say, oh, we know you're Messiah. We've read these Messianic Psalms. We read Micah 5, 2, that you were supposed to be born in Bethlehem. We've read Hosea 11 that says, out of Egypt, the Messiah shall come. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Oh, we've read Psalm 22. We're seeing the foreshadowings of the cross in these Messianic Psalms. We know that you're going to be butchered on a cross. We know that we will look on the one for whom was pierced, as Zechariah the prophet said. So this is you. The, the Jews completely miss it, and Jesus is turning his his attention to the Gentiles. And he's saying, let me introduce you to who I am. You don't have the Bible. You don't have the Old Testament. You have no idea who I am, but you are in need and I will heal you and I will give you the the gospel so that you can enter the kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's putting heaven on display with the message of saving grace. Thirdly, what does he do with those converts and those people he's healed? Well, he orders them. So he, he 
withdraws, he heals, and then he gives an order. He orders them not to say anything about what he's doing and order them not to make him known. That's what verse 16 says. Why does he do that? This is called the messianic secret in theological discussion. He says, keep a lid on it. Don't go tell. Well, aren't we supposed to go and tell? Isn't that the gospel we go and tell? Don't we want everybody to know about Jesus? Well, we do, but we also want to be protective of, uh, against hardening people's hearts. Um, hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. When you force feed truth down somebody's throat, when they don't want to hear it, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. More is not always better. You got to give a timely word to people. You want people to be open as you speak to them. Some of the most godly witnessing you can do is to not say a word at all. Think about 1 Peter chapter 3, um, the, you know, verses 1 and following. Uh, a woman, and this is for you Mother's Day mothers, uh, this is the womanhood moment, but a woman who's an unbeliever in the home uh, or a believer in the home with an unbelieving spouse is to win that husband without a word. In other words, you don't cram the gospel down their faces. You don't leave Bible verses in the freezer when they're looking for, you know, something or here and there. You don't do that. Um, I mean, I'm not saying exactly how you witness and how you say things or don't, but you navigate it with carefulness and with humility of mind and with a submissive spirit, never violating your own conscience in terms of the word of God, but where you can submit to your husband who does not yet know the Lord that gives an aroma of Christ in the room and your Sarah to that, that person who is misguided and you're trying to win them to Christ and they will see your godly demeanor and, and perhaps turn to the Lord. That's the most powerful way you can witness in a home with an unbeliever. I'll never forget being on a construction crew and I was working in the hot summer sun in somewhere in Hampton, Virginia. And um, the crew boss was like, you know, this guy who was big and burly and intimidating and he spit nails and, you know, did all kinds of things, hung from rafters and, and would intimidate us. And, and he was scary, but I'll never forget at lunch break sometimes when he would have his own sort of like you know, depressed moment. He would, he would bemoan the fact that his wife, who was a black belt in karate, but he would bemoan the fact that she was this new believer and was a Christian. And he would bag on her to us. We who were overtly Christians, we were at Bible college and that was our summer job. So we're like singing hymns and stuff. He was trying to discourage us, but he, he couldn't resist talking about how discouraging it was that now he's with his wife and she's this you know, really, really hard person to live with because she, she's a Christian, she loves the Lord, she doesn't like to do crazy things anymore. And, and he kind of respected her, but he was intimidated by her at the same time. And it was her godly, powerful demeanor. It's interesting. Well, compassion is moving Jesus out into a zone that would be scandalous to, um, for the Jews to watch. Um, and Jesus is saying, look, with this scandal... Let's be careful with how we wield the word of God. He ordered them to not say anything about it. He's moving in gentleness. He's moving in humility. We can harden up people so quickly. We can harden up our teenagers by force feeding them truth, by dragging them to church, by making them do every church program. You don't want to harden a heart so that when they're 18, they leave and say, oh, this is who I really am. You want to give the truth of the word of God in relationship. And I'm not saying we don't structure to have our kids at church. We should do that. But we do it with humility and prayerfulness and guidance and direction. And you're bringing your kids up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You're feeding them the truth. You're living it in front of them. That's how you win kids to Christ. 
But if you force feed the sharp two-edged sword, it will cut them in a way that you don't want them to be cut. Because the word is always returning, uh, not returning void. It's always powerfully bringing people to a crossroads. Every time you speak the truth, someone on the other end of the hearing of the truth of the word of God is making a decision. They are recoiling and hardening or they are believing. That's always happening with the word of God. So we have to be careful as we wield it. Uh, this, I think a week ago, I don't know, maybe, yeah, I think it was a week ago. I, I, it was like one of the second or third times that I've ever used a chainsaw. You saw some of my trees that have been felled in my yard and stuff. Some service in the church have like been behind that and it's been great. But this one guy came over, everybody's my best friend now, right? They want to come over with their chainsaw and take some of the wood. And I'm glad, glad for that. But you know, I just haven't used a chainsaw a whole lot. And so I used it and I'm grinding up and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going through trees, but I'm, I'm terrified at the same time. You got to keep your arms out and know where your legs are, have escape roots, roots for your legs and hitting branches and not getting frustrated because, you know, it could bite and jump and all that stuff. Is anybody tracking with me? Am I just up here in my own zone? It's, I was having a blast. I really like to do stuff once I'm doing it. But the word is like that. We have to be careful. Even reading it in your own heart, read it devotionally, read it and believe it. Say it and believe it. Give it carefully because you want hearts to be open because otherwise it can, it can cut people in a way that would do them detriment. That's why in Matthew 13, Jesus starts teaching in parables. It's a judgment on people who are rejecting, but it's also a grace to people who are rejecting because he's not force feeding. He's giving a story. He's teaching in a way where people can get their heads around it or reject it in a softer way at that point. That's what parabolic ministry is for. So Jesus is doing these three things. Why is he doing that? Why did he withdraw? Why did he heal everyone? And why did he order people? in this way to, um, to not expose him. Well, it's because his main motive, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, fulfillment is an amazing thing. Uh, Jesus is actually down to, the, down to the very precise, elegant beauty of, of this fulfilling Old Testament scripture and prophecies. And I mentioned a couple of them, the Micah 5.2, Hosea 11, Psalm 22, Psalm 2, Isaiah 53. I mean... Zechariah, I think it's chapter 13 or 14. There are amazing texts in scripture that are very precisely fulfilled by Jesus. And Jesus, by him just following after what God the Father wanted him to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, would find himself fulfilling these truths. But Jesus also, and I want to add this, he's also deliberately deciding to fulfill these truths. And that's why he went to the nations. He knew what he was doing. He knew he was walking in the path of Isaiah chapter 42. He knew it was time and he is fulfilling it. He fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42 is where this reference is taken one. Isaiah 61 also alludes to it. But these are fulfillments that Jesus is doing to prove who he was. It's proving that he is Messiah and proving, and let me say this to make it more specific, proving that his course of action that he was taking right now, that was very iconoclastic or mold breaking was the right course of action. And he's proving that with Isaiah 42. He's proving that with something that's hundreds of years BC, like six or 700 years BC. This is exactly what Jesus is supposed to do. I'm taking my cues from the prophet Isaiah to reach the nations. That's exactly what Messiah is supposed to do. 
That's what he's doing. And he's saying, let me prove this with a few, a few uh, markers. The first one is an, a, a strong identification. Verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will, here's his course of action, proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, originally when this was written, it was written before um, Babylonian captivity, but it was foreshadowing that. A couple chapters later, it's going to talk about King Cyrus, who was the second king um, after Darius. You remember the Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken in Babylonian captivity. Um, Israel is, in, you know, the southern kingdom is there, and um, it's very sad. But then, um, while Daniel is there under a new king, a new regime, Cyrus is raised up. He's named in Isaiah 45, just a few chapters later. How is he named? Well, because God ordained, you know, he inspired the scripture. A lot of liberals will say, well, it's two authors and somebody retrofitted something. That's all garbage. It's that the Holy Spirit wrote it. And so the Holy Spirit knew Cyrus's name. And Cyrus, um, one commentator said that um, Isaiah had in mind Cyrus here as a pagan um, leader who God used to release the remnant of Israel to go back to um, to go back to their homeland and rebuild there, and that's that's a that's a picture. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus here, as he's mentioned here as this incredible shepherd. Not sure that that exactly ties, but this is prophetic about Jesus for sure. Behold, my servant. Behold, he's identifying. Look up here. Behold. This is the magnificent son, the one whom I love. Just like what he said at Christ's baptism in um, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Behold, my servant. He titles him as a servant, which also could be translated child or son. There's a note of intimacy. Whom I have chosen. There's election here. It all begins with Jesus. I've chosen you. My beloved, you're, you're filling my heart with whom my soul is well pleased. Just like a mother and a son saying, I mean, the, the children fills, the child fills the heart of the father. There's love there. He's pleased. The incomparable Christ is loved by his father whom is chosen. The same um, kind of affection and booming voice of affirmation from heaven happens at the transfiguration we're going to read about later in Matthew 17, 5 and John 12, 28. Incredible. This is how God feels about Jesus. It's how we feel about Jesus. And then we have an identification that goes to an affirmation. And the affirmation here is, is part of Jesus' raison d'etre. Raison d'etre is the French phrase for reason for being. What is his reason for being? Let me just give it away. It's to witness. It's to witness. People who don't have a reason for being will digress in life. I don't know if you've seen that. If people don't know why they're here, what they're doing, what their every day is about, then what happens is that you begin to, you begin to just live in, in the soup of a world that's confused. You live in the malaise of the clouded judgment of our society. You live in the, the fear of not knowing what's going to come around the corner. You, you live in the effects of the fall in aches and pains in your body. And, and when you have a reason for life, and a lot of moms have the reason of raising kids in the Lord. A lot of workers have reason um, that where they find their identity and, and their life in their job and their work. Um, but one thing that we all can have as Christians is we're wanting to win people to Jesus. 
that's in counseling, that's in talking, that's in speaking to people. That's what Jesus was put on this earth to do. It's why we're kept here when we become saved. You're my beloved son with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. What's significant about that? Well, Jesus gave his Holy Spirit and anointed, I mean, sorry, the father anointed Jesus for him to be able to carry out his raison d'etre. Jesus won't ask you to do anything he doesn't empower you to do. God will not put more on you than he puts in you to bear up. He, he did that. And at baptism, it was demonstrated with the spirit descending upon Jesus as if a dove. Jesus, the perfect man, was perfectly empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach, to minister, to, to resist temptation. All temptation was external for Jesus, but he, he resisted it perfectly. He was without sin. Jesus was able to, to speak truth in the midst of accusation. Why? Because he had the power of the Holy Spirit to paint Jesus in a, in a sort of stoic manner where he's dispassionate or impassive or, or someone who, who's almost like the God of deism and disengaged. That's not Jesus. Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit, fully engaged, fully passionate to live his life in a fallen world. Because he was anointed by the Spirit. Remember Samuel anointed um, the young shepherd boy David. The most unlikely shepherd um, boy to um, come out of the house of Jesse. The last son to come in. And Samuel pulls out this skin of oil and dumps it over David's head. That's the picture of anointing of the Holy Spirit that was over Jesus. And we too likewise have been anointed and empowered to fill out our mission. What is the mission? Well, not only is Jesus identified and affirmed, he's also given the mission of proclamation. Proclamation, verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice. Angele, he will announce justice to the Gentiles. The word justice is krinon, which can be translated um, condemnation. It's mostly translated condemnation. Um, what, what does that mean? Well, in terms of evangelism, we are preaching judgment. We're preaching judgment so people will be saved. Justice and judgment kiss at the cross. The judgment of God was poured out against Jesus on the cross. The Paschal Lamb absorbed it all. We have to talk about sin because otherwise that makes no sense. That wooden cross makes no sense unless you understand that your sin was, was nailed there and Jesus bore the wrath judgment for your sin and gave you grace. He gave you justice. He gave you release. He gave you victory and freedom for the judgment that he absorbed. Jesus came because God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were never a plan B, and he's ministering to the Gentiles with the word of God, proclaiming truth, preaching justice so that we can be justified or made right with God. That's what he's doing. Social justice is this uh, red herring and false teaching that is saying that we need to intermix do-gooding with the gospel. The gospel is all about having our sin dealt with on the cross and our hearts transformed. And then guess what? Then you'll want to do good. You'll, you know, if we could heal the man with the withered hand, we would do that. That is a doing good thing on the Sabbath. But the doing good is not the gospel. The doing good is the fruit of the gospel. The root of the gospel is being saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. Let's say man should boast. If you mix works with the gospel, do-gooding works with the gospel, at core, you no longer have the gospel. 
You have religion. We've got to rip that out and say we have the root and we have the fruit. And you can't invert the two. Now we have um, another picture. We have Jesus identified. We have Jesus affirmed. We have Jesus proclaiming. And then Jesus in sublimation. Sublimation. What does that mean? Identification, affirmation, proclamation, sublimation. It means he's, he's humbling himself in his, in his um, witness. He will not, verse 19, quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What does that mean? Jesus is not arguing in a way that's fleshly. He's not raising his voice in the flesh in anyone ever. He's, he's ministering truth. Yes, he's speaking back. He's responding, but he's doing it humbly in a manner that gives glory to God, that takes no glory for himself. He doesn't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. He's um, not praising himself. He's not trying to um, you know, manipulate people with histrionics. Yeah, he would preach loudly like John the Baptist, but, but he's, he's, you know, he's not in the flesh. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to um, dog out Ben Shapiro. I, you know, I listen to him a little bit. He's interesting. A lot of you would connect with that and his conservative positions. But he's entertaining. And, and he he's, speaks really fast and quick. And he's, um, he's a provocateur. That wasn't Jesus' MO. He didn't have to do stuff like that. Those kinds of things um, were unnecessary. because, And that's what it's saying. He's just speaking truth and letting the truth do the work. The word of God. The word of God does it all. The word of God does it all. I love the Martin Luther, you know, sort of statement where people said, look at all you did in your lifetime. He said, no, the word did it all. The word of God did it all. I didn't do anything. Jesus was not a barking dog or a brawler wrangling with histrionics. He just spoke the truth. And we can't open anyone's eyes or unclog anyone's spiritual deafness. We can just trust the truth. And then lastly, so you got identification, affirmation, proclamation, sublimation. This is all Jesus. This is all lining up with who Jesus is. And finally, we have uh, next validation. Validation. Um, this is where verse 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Let's stop there. The most unlikely people come to faith in Christ. I mean, Jesus in the, in the synagogue, when he was dealing with the Pharisees as bruised reeds, he, he didn't break them. He, he withdrew. Think about that. With the nominally religious people, he wasn't breaking them apart. But he for sure was going to the Gentiles now who their lives were bruised. Um, a bruised reed was uh, what they would make flutes out of. And if, if, if our reeds are what they would make flutes out of, there were a dime a dozen. If there was a bruised reed, they would just snap it and break it. That was, you know, just discard it. Like a straw that's, you know, you ever open a straw and I know we don't use straws anymore, right? No, anyway, you open a plastic straw and it's, and it's cracked and you try to use it and you just throw it away. Well, Jesus ministered to people who were bruised. He did not throw people away. A smoldering wick or, or a damaged flax that you would put in a lamp that would make a, you know, not a good light or an acrid smell or something like that. He didn't discard. Kept things going. He reached out to people who were smoldering and would not snuff them out. You know, I was thinking about, um, we have a contaminated light in our hallway um, in our in our house, we have a lot of different little lights and light switches. As a dad, I'm always 
cutting lights off, you know, because I've got a lot of kids in the house. Well, one of our lights is corrupted right now. It's in our bathroom. And, and if you, you push it too hard or too soft, it flickers like this. And, um, you know, one of our kids, horse playing, broke that um, little switch. It can easily be fixed, but I'm way too lazy to get it done. Anyway, so I just deal with it. And there it is. It just flickers and stuff. You kind of have to manipulate it. But, you know, what I do instead of getting frustrated by a light doing that is I just love my child. I go, I love my children. You know, if there's little nicks in the walls or, you know, damaged, you know, sheetrock or things that you see, instead of stressing out over that, you say, I love my kids. I'm glad I have so much life in here to do damage to my house. <laughs> and Jesus loves us like that. He loves us. And, and his evangelistic heart was to reach out to people who were hurting. You say, why, why didn't um, the... Why didn't the, the Jews believe? They had the Old Testament. They had Jesus compassionately reaching out. He was the Paschal Lamb. They knew they needed to be saved. Um, but even with all that they had going for them, they were self-righteous. They were stubborn. They were legalistic. They were hard-hearted. They were critical. They were judgmental. They were opportunistic with Jesus' miracles. And ultimately, they were murderous in their heart. They should have believed and they didn't. Why should the Gentiles, why, why shouldn't the Gentiles believe? They, they shouldn't have believed because they had no knowledge of the Old Testament. They didn't know they needed a Messiah. They had no knowledge of sin. Um, they didn't know any of these things. They didn't have religion in their background. They worshiped other gods. They, they lived in paganistic pleasure seeking. That was, that was the Gentiles' life. But why did the Gentiles come to faith in Christ? Because they knew that they were a bruised reed that Jesus didn't break. That's why you reach out to someone with no religious background who has nothing and you give them Jesus and suddenly they go, oh, I had no idea that I was a sinner, but I see that I'm a sinner and I had no idea how great Jesus is to save me from my sin. But now I love Jesus. That's what Jesus was doing. You show people Jesus, a life that's been made into a bruised reed is a life that's more open to Jesus. Life that's been made into a smoldering wick that Jesus won't quench is open to Jesus. People brought to the brink, to breaking points, to desperation. They need saving grace. They're, they're, they're sort of breathing their last gasp of air. And Jesus comes along and he turns the flame back up instead of extinguishing it. People that never knew they needed Jesus suddenly see that they need Jesus and then they give their life to Jesus. Finally, vindication. What does this look like? Um, The last um, sort of way that Jesus fulfilled this passage, he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Um, The word bring here is is a dramatic word. I have to just bring it up. It's one of my favorite Greek words. It's ekbalo. I like word picture words. Ek means out of, like out or away, and balo is where we get the word ball, and it's the idea of throwing. You're throwing something away, ek balo, bringing. It's just dramatic language. It's, it's like the same word that's used when Jesus cast a demon out. He's throwing the demon out, ek ballistically, ek balo. So when you're saved, it's dramatic. When you're saved and you're a Gentile who had no concept of Christ, and he's the one who's bringing justice to bear in your life, giving you victory. It's like throwing off the old ragged garment of your old life and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. He did this for the nations. And I can't resist just, 
you know, it was because we had special music today and the flowers and all that. But just go to um, Isaiah 42. I'm just kidding. I'm glad we did all that. But we're, you know, we're, we're nearly at noon, but sometimes you just got to go with it. Look at Isaiah 42, um, verse 4. This is after all the quotation of verses 1 to 3, and then you get to 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for the Lord. Look at this. Thus God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison of those who sit in the darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I give my glory. I give to no other nor praise to carved idols. For the former things have come to pass, the new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Why do I bring that up? That's conversion. That's conversion. You say, what does it mean to be saved? Just read that. And if that resonates with what God's done for you, you are most likely a born again Christian. The lights have come on. He reached you as a Gentile pagan and he came in and that was his raison d'etre. That was what he came to do. Do you want to be part of this mission? Do you want to witness to people? Then go to work with this mindset and show up with this mindset. Speak truth. Don't force feed truth. Keep your, keep your mouth under check. Watch what you write. Watch what you say. Separate yourself in holiness to the Lord. Separate yourself from worldliness and then separate yourself unto the world. Give yourself for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Give yourself in the name of Christ and be the witness to the watching world and win people to Jesus.